Amen. You can grab a seat. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope, and today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, don't panic. We would love to gift you uh, a Bible on your way out in a modern English translation. Very helpful, uh, makes it a lot more accessible to people like me, and uh, would love to give you one of those. Today we are back in our Refocus series where we're thinking about cornerstone pieces of our lives and how God would speak into them. Especially when they think about starting a new year, it's a good place, it's a good marker, it's all arbitrary of course, but it's a good way to start and say, I do want to make some changes, and I'm going to, how though? And we've talked about finances, eek, right? Yep, talked about finances, hard sort of core level idol for most of us, which is our money and our um Uh, different ways we want to spend our money. We think a lot about possession language, and we started by asking that question, what do you have that you have not received? Again, eek. But the right kind of question, the right kind of perspective as we begin reworking our understanding of these things. Then we moved last week into talking about our faith and what we're going to do with our relationship to God in the new year. How do we relate to him and how can we get closer to him? We thought about all kinds of different stuff, but we ended up with um, the wooing, the, the idea that God's bringing us to himself, that he's inviting us into a joy that's unparalleled anywhere else. And we invited you to, to God time, to, to spending time in scripture as a people, as a group on things like that Bible reading plan, stuff that we've opened up on the website we invite you to. We'll talk more about it in just a second. But today we're going to talk about our families. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where things get a little tighter, a little tenser, because we're all part of families. And so we all get that families are not the easiest place to be. I know that everybody here is not necessarily married. Everybody here doesn't necessarily have kids. But everybody here is a kid. Gotcha. And the relationships that you have, whether it's biological family or not, tend to reflect that level of intimacy, wherever you are. You start to have friends that feel like brothers. You start to have coworkers even that, that you look up to, and they're maybe your bosses, and they, you start to have these kind of mentor relationships, and you see them in this other light. You have people who speak into your world at that level. And the thing that the Bible gives us is, is two-parted, But part of our problem is that we only see the second part. So today we're going to start by looking at that second part. We're going to embrace it. We're going to see it for what it is. And then I want us to understand the first part and remember the foundation that God gives us for some of the hard things he says about some of these core relationships in our world. To begin, I just want to ask what the Bible says and what you may hear people say the Bible says about Your family, your spousal relationship, your relationship with your kids, your relationships with your parents. And I just want you to hear it as though I was saying it in your break room. As though I was saying it with your buddies. Not your church buddies, your real... No, I'm just kidding. You you have church friends, I hope you're real friends too. But your friends that are like, maybe not part of a church. 
And I just want you to hear it from their perspective. I, I, I don't know if you believe this or not. Hope Church is a place where we're hoping people don't believe everything. We hope it's a place that invites people of a lot of different perspectives to come and to ask questions honestly and that they're not going to get rebuffed for curiosity or skepticism. But if you are somebody who does believe that the scriptures are true, this is in there. And I want you to hear it as though I was saying it to your community outside of a church. And think about how they would hear what I'm about to say. It starts with a bang. Look at Ephesians 5. We're going to go down to verse 22. We're going to zoom back to verse 1 in a minute. And that's where we're going to kind of live. But I want us to read this. And it's a bigger passage than we usually read on a Sunday. But stay with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Boom! What did he just say? As to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. You're going to get nothing but nods with that out in the world, right? Yeah, definitely. We all believe that. Yeah, sure. All right, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I'm saying it first to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I know for a fact that Christians with other Christians are nervous about reading this passage. But if you're hearing it the way that your friends outside of the church hear it, I hope that there's pieces of it that stick out to you that much more. And here's why it's, it's important for you to, to feel some of the friction of a passage like this. Because it's possible for you to kind of hide your brain a little bit and think to yourself, well, yeah, I believe aspects of that or I believe all of that. But then you go out into life and you go out into the culture and you encounter constant messaging that goes exactly contrary to verses like these. And so the families within the church start to look like the families outside of the church because the values inside the church start to reflect the values outside of the church. And that's not a bad thing if the values outside of the church are great. But when it comes to this passage, 
When it comes to these we'll call household codes, where Paul or Peter or these New Testament writers would write down the way in which a home should operate. I hope you can understand that this is vastly different than how the world would, would commend us to operate our homes. You heard the words that I used. Discipline. Instruction. Obedience sacrifice, and submission. Those are not popular concepts. And yet, the church gets painted with a pretty broad brush, and you probably feel the same way about it, where you say to yourself, golly, some of this stuff sounds great, but if I become a Christian, or if I get closer to Christianity, don't I then have to put on all of this awkward, difficult painful, abusive? I don't know if I want my way of life to reflect that kind of rigid, uh, rigid Puritan lifestyle. Haven't we moved past that? Don't we know more about these things now? And yet the Christians, we're, we're over in the corner and we're shaking our finger telling everybody that the wives should submit to the husbands and the kids should obey their parents and that the fathers should sacrifice and just lay their lives down for their family. How do we bring this together? Culturally, we are against set meanings for anything. We have elevated personal choice to the point that you can describe and define yourself however you choose. And because of that, any set meaning that somebody would say is for everybody, not just for themselves, it causes friction. Culturally, we're against set genders. We believe in a fluidity of genders. We want to value some things about different genders, and there's a degree in which the culture wants to mix the two, a degree in which the culture wants to keep them separate. Biblically, God is saying he makes us male and female, that the two are separate and that they're different, and that it's okay that they're different. That you can value different things about the one and value different things about the other without those things being the same. Can I tell you how much I love a good mustache? They've been painted with a broad brush. They've been painted with a bad brush. People think that it's a molestache. Have you heard that word before? Oh, it's a terrible word. We've got to get rid of that word. A firm, full, flowing mustache? It's a lovely thing for a man to have. It gives him strength. And I love him. I'm waiting for the day when you can have a mustache. And it's not ironic, and you're not making a statement, and you're not trying to be funny. You just get to have a mustache. But that's not what I want Rachel to have. I like having mustache. I would love to have a mustache, a big, full, Ron Swanson mustache. But I don't want Rachel to have one, my wife. I'd like for her to be a lady and look like a lady because I think those two things are separate. Is that okay to say in our culture? If it's not, do you understand why that's a rub, that's friction between us and people that, outside, people that are committed to believing these things that the Bible says? What do we do when we say that there are set ethics and that those ethics are things that you can pass on to your children and you can tell your children this is right and this is wrong? And that you can prescribe that right and wrong beyond just uh, the golden rule. And you can say to your children, this is what you should believe. 
And you're going to lean into that should. You're going to do what we do at Hope Church. You're going to try and help them understand why they should and attract them to it. They have to believe it. They can't just be forced into it. But you want them to see that you are saying to them, should. How do we confront this concept biblically? Well, the hard second part of what the Bible says about how families should operate is always followed by and littered throughout with the first part. See, Ephesians 5, 22 and following comes after Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. So let's read it. It says, therefore, and he's talking about the other things he's talked about in the book of Ephesians so far. So far, be imitators of God, imitators of God as beloved children. In the gospel, we believe that we're adopted by God. We get to be called his children, not in the same way that he is God or that Jesus is his son, but we are adopted into his family. Somehow we are given his name. We're going to imitate him as our dad because he is our dad. And then verse 2, and walk in love. What does it mean to be his imitator? To walk as he does in love, as Christ loved us. And then what does that love look like? And gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What he's doing is he's using the word love, but he's helping us understand that sometimes we break that word up and we use it in different ways, even though it's the same word. And that the enemy likes to keep that ambiguity going in our head so that we can flip back and forth and treat our family like we treat these other things that we love, but not in the same way. There's a guy named Jonathan Edwards, and you've heard about him maybe because of a famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Go read it. I don't know. Don't be scared to read. Go read it. It's great. It's hard, but it's great. But he also said all kinds of other things, and many would consider him probably the largest or the greatest intellect that America's ever produced. And Jonathan Edwards, as he's a, he's a preacher, as he's parsing these things out biblically, he takes the word love and he breaks it into two pieces. And he's like a Puritan, so they're not scared of syllables, so this isn't short and sweet. Be ready. But it's the love of convenience versus the love of benevolence. And again, it's my job to try and break that stuff down. Okay, so I love you for me, love of convenience, or I love you for you, love of benevolence. And let's break those two things down because, again, if you don't use different words for them, then it's possible that you'll start to mix up the concepts. And definitely we do this when it comes to our spouses and our kids. You love somebody out of convenience, meaning you love them for you. You're giving them all kinds of restrictions and expectations. I love McDonald's out of convenience. They have to earn that love. And many of you would say, they have not earned that love. <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't love McDonald's for McDonald's. But I do. They're everywhere, and it's always the same. You can trust it. You know that the ice cream machine's broken. You don't have to ask for ice cream. It's, it is broken. It's broken. You can't have any. They're going to have the same Diet Coke. They're going to have the same menu, and it's going to be vaguely the same price. And it's going to be pretty quick, and it's going to make you feel the same way. Happy for a little while and then sad for a long while. 
But as long as McDonald's keeps up their end of that bargain, I can continue to love McDonald's for McDonald's. But as soon as they drop into like Burger King or Taco Bell range, then I've got to make an assessment. I'm not committed anymore because I don't love them for them. I love them for me. And if they're not doing for me what they were doing for me, then I don't love them anymore. You got to understand this concept. Now look at the love of benevolence, the love of them for them. If you have a love of benevolence and it's because of them, it's out of your goodwill towards them, that other person, then everything gets flipped upside down. You're now pursuing that person whether or not they fulfill their end of that bargain, whether or not they are lovely. Do you see now how God's love towards us is one, not the other? And if that's the case, do you understand that God's desire for you and your spouse, for you and your relationship to your dad, for you and your relationship to your child is not for your happiness, but for his glory and your holiness. Do you see a distinction? If it's all about my happiness, well, now we're describing a love of convenience, a love that's based on whether or not they are lovely, based on whether or not they create that happiness in me. But God's saying, no, 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 you're going to be imitators of me. You're going to love others the way that I've loved you. You are going to, to love them for them, even when that love is horrible. Even when it does not create happiness, because it makes your heart ache. Another way to say this, another thing that we can kind of put on it, is it is a love that says, I'm going to put my happiness inside your happiness. I'm going to take my happiness, I'm going to, it's not codependency, but take this for what it's worth. I'm going to take my happiness and I'm going to give it to you in the sense that I'm going to do what it takes to make you happy. Not just happy, but Joyful. I'm going to do what's best for you because of what God's done for me. Now we've got a totally different love and we've got a totally different system we're in to instruct our hearts and the way that we relate to our families. Now we've got something totally different. And of course, the only way that we're going to be able to do something like this is if we reflect, if we are imitating God. That's what the verse says. He doesn't just say, go out and do this out of your own strength and out of your own goodness. He doesn't think we have any strength or goodness. He says, go out and do this as you are imitators of me. Meaning that your source for the kind of love that we're talking about that gives and gives and gives because you're not getting from that person. Despite the fact that you're not getting from that person. Is the kind of love that's modeled by God toward us. 
So another pastor named John Piper, he kind of breaks some of this down and he helps us understand ways in which to measure this love of benevolence. And we, we want to do this because we want to see just how much God loves us. If you can understand how much God loves you, if by faith you can grip how much God loves you, it's going to change everything. It's going to change everything. It's going to be so attractive. You're not going to sin anymore. Yeah, we're not going to get there. This is heaven stuff, but we're going to take steps towards it. It's going to be so attractive. You're not going to choose anything else. You're not going to choose sin anymore. It's going to be so infectious that it's going to spill out of you into other people. And you're going to have a holy, God-like love towards those who you love most. And hate most. Not because you hate them, but because you love them so much and they've hurt you so much. So, how do we understand God's love toward us? So, here's, here's some ways to measure it. One would be the degree to which the person being loved does not deserve to be loved. We're saying that the amount of love of benevolence that you have is directly proportionate to the amount of love of convenience the other person gives you. You notice this when you get children because you marry your spouse and they're lovely and they're smart and they're helpful and you go on dates and they hold your hand and they're wonderful. They give and give and give to you. So the love of convenience, especially in like, I don't know, the first month is through the roof with your spouse. And so the love of benevolence isn't really called into play yet. He's on the bench. He's there, but he's not playing yet. Then you have children. And with children, they need everything. We talked about this the other day. My daughter was saying it to me. She's seven. She said, Dad, I don't want to be mean. But when babies are first born, they don't look good. <laughs> You're right, babe. You're right. They don't. It takes a minute for them to fill out, and then they become the most pretty thing in the world. But even as a cute thing, they're totally dependent, and they give nothing. You have this sort of glowing sense of self-worth and excitement because here's this thing you produced, but they're really not doing anything for you. They're earning nothing. They're doing nothing around the house. There's nothing that they're adding to you. And as they get older, it gets worse. So your love of convenience <laughs> through, the, through the first however many years is just at the bottom. And so for your kids, you, you, are, you have to employ a love of benevolence because they don't deserve your love. Now, put this back in God's shoes. As he looks at us and as he loves us, what is the amount of convenience he's getting from you? Crickets, what are you doing he couldn't do? I feel that every time I go out to serve him and I feel like, oh, man, that went really well. And I'm comparing it to other times that I've tried to serve God. And I'm thinking to myself, but, you know, if he did it himself, <laughs> wow, it would be a lot better. There's no convenience for God to love us. We don't deserve that love. Then you get to even further things where you think about the sin that we've done towards God. It's not like we're neutral. We're actively rebelling against God. I can't say everything in every sermon, but I think I can prove that to you if you don't agree with me. By God's standards, we're rebelling against him on a daily basis in a graphic way. 
What love of convenience does God have towards us? Then he must have an incredible love toward us. Another test is the greatness of the price paid to love a person. This is similar. But if God decided he loved us, even though we don't deserve love, he could still have walked away. Because you say, I love him. Oh, gosh, I love him. I love him like crazy. But what can I do? They've sinned against me and I'm holy. How can I possibly save them? And nobody, not even us, would have the temerity to say, well, if you send your only son to die on a cross, hmm, then maybe his blood could cover us. You wouldn't even suggest it. How could you? And that's what he's done for us. The greatness of the price he's paid because he loves you. You go further and you say the level of desire that God has for the good of the one that he loves. How much does God want your good? How much does God like you? There's a point where you get in the Christian faith. You say, okay, I, I believe the gospel. I believe he's holy. I believe I'm sinful. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I can only be saved by faith in that statement. Trusting in what Jesus has done for me. I, I, I believe all of that. And yet, I know my sin and I know God's holiness. And so I, I can't really go and stand before him because I, how could he like me? If I love him, I'm going to do him the favor of hiding from him. So he doesn't have to see me or think about me. But that's not what God says of you. Look at Zephaniah verses, chapter 3, verse 17. And again, nobody ever reads Zephaniah. I don't read Zephaniah, but you should. This is the kind of stuff that you get to when you get into the Minor Prophets. Look at what it says about God. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. He's not far away. Of course, he could be. We would be. But he is with us. He's in our midst. A mighty one who will save. And then listen to his disposition as he's going about this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. New mom holding baby and she's pinching cheeks and she can't stop talking in that weird voice and she loves. She's got so much gladness. He's got for us gladness. He's rejoicing over us with gladness. He's going to quiet you by his love. Imagine what you're saying to him. No, but, but I have done all these things and I, and I still kind of want to do those things. And I don't know and I, I, I hate you sometimes and I hate you a lot other times and I've never been obedient. And he's, shh, shh, shh. I still love you. Oh, I love you so much. Gosh, I still love you. I still want to rejoice over you with singing. I will exult over you with loud singing. Nobody should ever ask Josh to turn it down at Hope Church. We're being godly by being loud. That's what he does. Loud, loud. Singing because of his love for you. Do you see it? It's not love that you've earned. It's not love you deserve. It's love that he gives. So then, how do we love like that? We imitate because we've been filled. 
I've got love to give, even though you don't give anything back, because he's given love to me. When he says be an imitator, that should remind you of other things he said about us. In the very beginning, when he made Adam and Eve, he said that he made us as image bearers, those who would reflect his glory. So if we're image bearers, then when he says to be imitators, all he's saying is for us to reflect Our job is not to be the sun, but the moon. Our job is not to give light, but to receive and then reflect his light to the world. Do you see? Do you see how that turns on the head? Your love towards your spouse or your parents. How it turns on your head, your love for your kids. How if that's the foundation, then husband, you should lay down your life and sacrifice in the same way that Christ sacrificed for you. Wives, do you see why submission can work? Why it's okay to be different from your husband? Because you're not fighting and earning and pushing and who's going to be the best and who's going to be the most deserving. It's not necessary. Do you see how you can love your kids well at 5.30, 6 o'clock when you get home from work? And you got nothing to give. So you walk in and you're hoping that maybe they'll inspire something. They'll bring you something they made or they'll just come up to you, you know, fresh faced. And hey, dad. Oh, yeah, I do love you. Yeah, let's do something. But you come home and it's not that way. It's just a destroyed house with all kinds of horrible things happening. And you've got to get in there and mix it up. How do you have the energy, the love to do that? No, you have the ability to serve. To serve because you know that God is always going to serve and he's always going to love you. You have the ability to maintain distinctions. I don't have to make my kids like me. They can be different from me in every other way. And they will be. I don't have to force them into basketball. I would love for them to play basketball. I don't have to force them into basketball. I don't have to force them into some sort of false expectation because all I care about is that they receive the love that God is giving to me and then through me. I'm not going to idolize my kids. I don't need them to be perfect because my self-value, my world, um, um, not just my worldview, but who I am as an individual is based on whether or not they go out in the world and become successful. I'm able to work really, really hard even when they don't give me anything. Next week when we have a baptism service, uh, we're going to baptize Zoe Banta. Good friends with Keith and Adria and their little girls getting baptized. And I just started to think, what if one day, you know, my kids get baptized, they come to Christ and I get to baptize my kids? What's better than that? And then immediately you get scared it's not going to happen. Immediately you start planning how you're going to make it happen. What's the best way to make it happen? It's by having them see the love of God. What's the best way for them to see that? For it to be so grilled into me, for me to go and pursue it and experience it so thoroughly, so so fully every day that it's just going to spill out. And they're still going to see all of my warts. Of course they will. But they're also going to see the love that God's giving through me. And they're going to say to themselves, Dad's okay, but I'll tell you who's great. Who I want. What's better than that? What's more important than that? 
Same thing with your spouse. Same thing with these parents that have been away from God and hate God. And they don't understand where you have come to this belief in Him. So, start today. Go home and read Ephesians 5 and 6. Think about those principles, yes. But before you get excited about trying to make your wife submit or make your husband serve you, start with this love of God that you're going to imitate. Start with God time. Go to the website. Open it up. It's the easiest thing in the world. That's what we tried to do. We tried to make the most training wheel thing that we could to get you into the Bible. And if you're like way past that, great. But get into the Word daily and experience the love that He has for you. It's only by doing that that you're going to start to spill that love out. Lord and Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would reform our families by reforming our hearts, helping us to understand the foundation of the kind of love that we're going to build for our families. The only foundation that can really support the weight of the souls of our children and our parents and our spouses is your love. I pray, Father, that you would have us experience it, to know it fully, to really receive it, and having received it, to show it. For your glory and our good, in your holy name we pray. Amen.